Can Be New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. This morning, I'm so happy. I'm so glad that uh, Glenn is with us. Uh, I like Glenn, if that means anything to you. I really do. Um, I haven't said this in the other services, but Glenn has been a great encourager to Annette and I. Uh, I said other nice things, but this is a different nice thing. And, um, you know, for the last 12, 14 years, um, the Lord has just continued to progress this relationship. And what I've watched and I've seen in Glenn's life are a few things, and those few things are things that I want to have in my life. I've watched him lead strongly with great humility. Uh, He really listens to people. And whenever he makes decisions, especially now as our president, he makes decisions with you in mind. Uh, I constantly hear that same phrase he uses over and over. Let's make, let's make sure that people are taken care of. Let's make sure people are taken care of. Let's make sure they grow. We need to make disciples. We need to do that with our churches. And you constantly hear that. And I think that Glenn has really been called to all of us uh, for such a time as this. And it isn't just to our Foursquare family. We can say that, but I think that limits what we're talking about. This is about the kingdom of God. And it's about you having place in that. And we have a a president who releases that, who lets that happen, who allows you to see vision and to go for it. And that is applauded at every level now at our leadership. And I'm so thankful that Glenn and Debbie are leading us in these times and these days because we, uh, we need a leader like Glenn. So Glenn... Uh, thanks for coming. Come on up. Come on up. Thank you, Ron. I love you, honey. Appreciate you. Good morning. Well, it's great to be in Canby uh, today. And, uh, you know, when you live in L.A., it's great to be anywhere but L.A. Um, actually, L.A. is a very nice city. It's just brown. Um, and so when you get out... Um, and get to see so much green and lots of water and rivers and trees. And in fact, Ron and I got to play golf yesterday at Pumpkin Ridge, and I had to leave early because of a wedding. So I, when the wedding was over, I shook the hand of the bride's father, and I said, I know this wedding cost you a lot of money, but it cost me six golf holes. So I just want you to know the sacrifice that I made you know, I think the Bible says something about um, any man laying down his life for a friend. Um, <laughs> Ron and Annette, thank you. I, I know how much you love and care for this community and your shepherding ways. And one, one, of the, one Sunday I got to visit here, you were baptizing people and to hear their stories. Um, and I know your passion for investing in young leaders and you are to be highly commended for your commitment to the kingdom. And, and uh, you guys are doubly blessed to have this couple right here be your pastors. And so uh, I love them a lot and enjoy getting to hang out with them. I'm going to tell you a story that Diane Roberts told me. So don't, uh, don't write me, okay? You can write Diane. Um, Bob forgot his wedding anniversary. So his wife was really mad, and she said, Tomorrow, this time, I better have something in my driveway. It goes from zero to 206 seconds. <laughs> so the next day, she went out, and in her driveway was a package. And she opened the package. It was a set of bathroom scales. Um, 
I'm just the messenger, okay? Now, that's been two weeks ago, and Bob has not been seen since, okay? So maybe some kind of revenge there for his wife. My, um, since I was elected uh, to this office, my most f- f- fun um, interaction with this being called the president was a little elderly lady that came up to me about four weeks ago in Quartz Hill, California. And she was in between ter- services and she came up to me. She said, I know who you are. You are, you're the head of the church. I said, no, actually, Jesus is head of the church, but I do work for him. So, uh, but we had a fun little interchange. She was so sweet, and uh, it's been an incredible season in the life of our church. We've got lots of, lots of stuff ahead of us, and um, um, God's going to be with us. I-, I love technology. I mean, with one button, I'm at my notes. With another button, uh, I've got the Bible. I mean, that's just, that's really, really cool. And with another button, um, it's 17 to nothing in the second quarter uh, (laughs) between Texans and Titans. So just in case you were wondering, I thought I'd keep you. See, actually, if my sermon gets boring for me, uh, you have no idea, but I'm... uh, (laughs) I'm actually surfing. I want to read you, um, I, this is pretty straightforward this morning. I want to read you a passage of scripture, and I want to tell you five things that I think Jesus did so that his voice, and, and I want to equate the word voice with influence, was heard. Because I think the church is losing its voice. I think our voice is becoming muted in the middle of other voices. In fact, sometimes the only thing the church is known today for is what we're against, not what we're for. But see, Jesus came in the middle of a time where, frankly, there wasn't a lot to rejoice in. I mean, if you were going to picture a time um, for Jesus to come in, in a time when the Jewish people were slaves of the Roman Empire... And the church as they knew it then, um, the religious leaders were um, vilified because of their insensitivities. And yet Jesus came to bring about uh, good news. In fact, one description of him, it says, he went about doing good. That's what he was known for. He went about doing good. He was tough, but he was tender. And I want to read you a story um, that Luke records, um, a conversation between what he says was an expert in the law and Jesus. Luke 10, verse 25 reads, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So it's interesting that Luke discerns that this man was not just asking Jesus a question out of curiosity. He was asking him a question to put him on the spot to um, maybe to cause him to trip up and to see if, if his teachings were consistent. So he asked him this question, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replies, what is written in the law? How do you read it? I always love Jesus because usually he 
answers a question with a question. The man says, well, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbors yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he said to Jesus, so who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So there was a person in obvious distress. Jesus tells a story, and a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, <laughs> let, me, let me insert this. I haven't done these other two services, so Ron, you'll have to know if this was okay. Let me, Jesus is retelling the story today. But a four-square pastor saw a man in deep distress and passed on the other side. And a church administrator saw a man in deep distress and passed by on the other side. But the local bar owner, see, you got you to understand when Jesus tells the word and he uses the word Samaritan, it would have been for them the lowest class. It, it would have been something that would have had a stigma attached to it. Because the Samaritans were a part of a ten tribe uh, contingency from Israel that in, when they were captured by the Assyrians, instead of the lower two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, when they were captured by Babylon, remained true to God. But when the ten tribes were captured by the Assyrians, they intermarried. They took their gods. And eventually the Orthodox Jews, as they called themselves in the south, uh, had great um, prejudice against the Jews in the northern part because they had intermarried and they called them actually a half-breed. So when Jesus uses this terminology, he's saying two people that you would have expected to help him Versus another person you would not have expected to help him. And this is the context he puts the story in. But when he came, he saw the man, took pity on him. When he came to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So notice, this man goes beyond compassion. He sees him. He has compassion, but he acts. And he doesn't even just act. He actually stays with this issue till it is resolved. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law said the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. I want to talk to you about... Um, Five simple things that Jesus did that I think characterize his life. And I think if the church would be guilty of these five things, we would change the way people would see the church. Someone did a, a, um, a survey in Australia recently that only claims 2% Christian. So they asked them four questions. It was, a, it was an interesting survey. They said, what do you think about God? What do you think about Jesus? And what do you think about spiritual things? And what do you think about the church? Now, this is a, you would almost say, a godless nation. When it came to their view of God, it was highly favorable. When it came to their view of Jesus, it was highly favorable. 
When it came to their view of spiritual things, it was highly favorable. But when it came to their view of the church, it was highly unfavorable. Isn't it interesting? They weren't disputing God. They weren't disputing the life of Jesus. They weren't even disputing spiritual things. But when it came to the delivery system, the way that the gospel is supposed to be manifested in this world, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, they had a very different view of the church than they had of God. A very different view of Jesus. I met with a, a young German couple between services and they said, Glenn, thank you so much for the message you brought because if people in America don't see it, they should come to Europe because we're seeing exactly what you're talking about. On every high place in the city is a cathedral or a chapel that in many places is no longer even used for church. My son lived in London for two years and lived in what had been an old Catholic church, and it was now a set of condominiums. I mean, if we don't realize that uh, in in the Western world, in one-third of the world, the church is losing its voice. It's being muted. And I'm challenging us today to look again at the things that happen in Jesus's life and say, could this be us? First thing that I want to highlight about the life of Jesus is he challenged the status quo. Say that with me. He challenged the status quo. Now, generally, we think of people who are (laughs) maybe Christians or um, that have a good reputation are people who just abide by all the rules and live by all the expectations of society. But I want to challenge you today that most of the people that we honor, most of the people that we revere as, today we would call them revolutionaries, were people that challenged the status quo. Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in a prison on an island because he challenged the political status quo of South America and the apartheid uh, political foundation. But today, he's revered as a reformist and, and someone who changed the face of a nation. Martin Luther King was killed, and many revolutionaries are killed. Jesus was only 33 when they took his life because they could no longer take his message of reconciliation. They were intimidated by him, and they feared his influence over people. Well, they killed Martin Luther King. But I I love what Martin Luther King said about our voice. And he said, you will forget the words of your enemies, but you will never forget the silence of your friends. Isn't that a powerful statement? You will forget the words of your enemies, but you will never forget the silence of your friends. But Jesus challenges status quo. I mean, you know, I got to tell you, Jesus is the guy who walked in the back of the church and threw tables and chairs and called people names and said, you have taken this place, which was called to be a house of prayer for all nations, a house of prayer for all nations, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. His disciples ate... Uh, broke grain on the Sabbath, and they were challenged. He was called a friend of sinners. Can I remind you that his first miracle was to create a batch of wine, and good wine at that. 
And it's just interesting the things that we would maybe associate with um, being religious or being a Christian or that oftentimes he went against the status quo. 21-year-old Dakota Meyer, a corporal in Afghanistan, they were heading toward a valley of, of tribesmen and their goal was to reach an accord so that they could have peace and be able to pass through the area without the fear of the insurgents. But instead of walking into a peace agreement, they walked into a trap and the insurgents had positioned themselves in the hills above this valley and, and they began to pick these soldiers off like sitting ducks and Dakota Meyer just happened to be outside of, of the battle fray when it started and he scrambled to a high place and radioed central command and asked for air support and that was denied saying that civilians might be involved and then he asked for permission four times he asked for permission from central command to go into the valley to rescue the fellow soldiers that were trapped under fire under certain um, I mean he just knew without being rescued they were going to die four times he was denied entry into the valley so he jumped in a Humvee, got behind the gun turret and talked someone into driving this Humvee and made his way into the valley because he was driven by a higher conviction. And that was a conviction the Marines actually taught him, which is don't leave anyone on the battlefield. So at this point, he's being driven by principle instead of by policy. He didn't go in one time. He went in five times. He actually ruined three Humvees. But he rescued 13 U.S. soldiers and 16 Afghan soldiers. When they asked him if they thought he was a success, he said no because some of them did not make it out alive. They interviewed him on 60 Minutes. He was awarded the Medal of Honor, which is the highest award that you can give a military person at age 21. And when they asked him what he thought about disobeying the orders from Central Command, by the way, Several of them in the Central Command got dismissed from their um, duty and or were reassigned. But when they asked him, how, what did you think when you disobeyed the orders? He said, I would rather spend my life in jail knowing that I did the right thing than to be sitting here alive today, having not responded with the convictions of my heart. See, I think if we were willing a little more to test the status quo... And then not let the church sink into an oblivion of just following rules and policies, which that's what happens after a period of time instead of realizing that what should drive us are principles and values. The second thing that I think if the church were to model that Jesus did, he never gave up on anyone. Say that with me. He never gave up on anyone. I just love this about Jesus. I'm... Um, I don't know how he put up with Simon Peter. In fact, at one time, he, if you read the New Testament, I remember Ron Mel taught me this a couple years ago. He said, if you, when you saw Jesus call him Simon, he would say, you remind me of the way you used to live. And when he called him Peter, he was saying, you're fulfilling your prophecy, uh, the prophecy of your life. And Ron said, and when he called him Simon Peter, even Jesus wasn't sure what he was up to. But what we know is that Jesus never gave up on people. It was reflected in the heart of God. You, you see it in the Old Testament. 
You see it in the book of Jonah, this prophet that's been given an assignment by God to go to Nineveh, 500 miles inland from Jerusalem to to Iraq, modern-day Iraq, to preach repentance to a tribal people who were known as the most violent people on the face of this earth. Their claim to fame was they could keep somebody alive under torture longer than anybody else. So all of a sudden, Jonah gets this word from the Lord. You read it. It's only four chapters in the book of Jonah. I want you to go to Nineveh and preach repentance. Now, can you imagine? Let me, let me t- t- fast forward to the end of the story. Jonah's talking to someone on the telephone, and someone says to Jonah, hey, well, how did it go? Well, I, I preached. Yeah, it took me three days to, to reach everybody. Well, how did it go? Well, everybody got saved. This is like 150,000 people, okay? Everybody got saved? Yeah, everybody got saved. Well, you must be ecstatic. No, I'm depressed. What do you mean you're depressed? They don't deserve God's mercy. That's what he says. At the end of the book, when everybody repents, Jonah is depressed because he said they don't deserve God's mercy. Well, he, he felt that way before because when God gave him the assignment, he doesn't get on a chariot and go 500 miles in. He gets on a cruise ship and goes to Tarshish. And God intercepts it and creates or, or makes the fish, the whale, come out of the water and he swallows Jonah. And I love this about the story of Jonah because this shows me the heart of God. He doesn't pursue us to pay us back. God pursues us to bring us back. And see, that's a very different way in which instruction and correction is carried out is we know we can run from God. We just ought to be aware we can't outrun him. Thirdly, Jesus refused to live with offense. I love this. Do you know that when you live with unforgiveness, you not only trap the person with judgment, but you trap yourself? That's the interesting thing is when you forgive someone, you you release them, but you also release yourself. But if you live with unforgiveness, you not only cast judgment over them, but you also trap yourself, which is why Jesus said, you just, you live this way. It doesn't, it doesn't come in levels of, well, they deserve it. This person deserves it, so forgive them. This person doesn't deserve it. Or this person meant it, and this person didn't. No, it's forgive everyone. Because why? You have been forgiven. See, I think if the church would not live with offense, sometimes the world can't see any difference between the way we live and the way the world lives. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the world saw, wow, how... How do you, you see, when the soldier saw Jesus die and he said, surely this must have been the son of God. How could he forgive the very people who put him there? When the last supper occurred, I'd never thought about this till recently. Jesus is telling his disciples what's going to happen in the next 24 hours. And then he says to them, and one of you sitting at this, betr- at this table will betray me. Now, what I think is interesting is that no one, knew, no one knew who it was. Is it me? The only way that could happen is that Jesus lived without offense toward the very person who would, with a kiss that night, betray him. But it's leading in a way that people would want to follow that kind of leadership. 
I frankly don't want to be really good friends with people who want to join me in revenge over someone else because they're helping to contribute to my destruction. In fact, a loyal friend of yours shouldn't buy into your story. They should challenge your story because in the end, they're saving you from living with offense. You will think and interpret it oftentimes if a person's loyal, they will be loyal to me if they agree with my side of the story. I love it when we're always put in places where we could exact justice or revenge, but instead we give mercy. I was in a restaurant a couple years ago in Alabama and March Madness, it was a season of March Madness and we were in the lobby of the restaurant and North Carolina Tar Heels were playing on the television uh, monitor, and my kids both graduated from Chapel Hill, and so we're big Tar Heel fans. So I, I saw this game going on. I was interested in it. We were waiting to get in the restaurant, and this couple right in front of us, the husband turned to the wife and said, I hate North Carolina basketball. So my ears perked up. And he said, they have the most obnoxious fans in the country. So I didn't say anything. We sat in the restaurant, but I found him in the restaurant and I managed to get his server to come to my table. And I said, you're waiting on this couple? And she said, yes. And I said, I want you to bring me their bill. I'm going to pay for their lunch, but I want you to let me write something on their receipt. <laughs> you should have seen her face. She, she was not sure. I don't think she'd ever had that happen. So she brought me the bill and I paid it and I wrote these words. Not every fan from North Carolina is obnoxious. Enjoy your free lunch. <laughs> he doesn't know who wrote it. He has no idea in the restaurant who overheard him in the lobby. But I'll tell you one thing. He may still think North Carolina fans are obnoxious, but he will never forget that one paid for his lunch. <laughs> Isn't that in a way, the kind of way Jesus wants us to take somebody who sees life in only one perspective and all of a sudden by, by our actions, they're forced to consider something else? I thought the church was like this. I thought the church was prejudiced. I thought the church only let the people who look like them and sound like them come through the front door. So many times, God will help us be creative in ways that it will totally change what the world thinks. I remember hearing John Tyson, New York City, talk about um, that God had led them to this um, part of the city. And um, a woman was trying to find out her ministry before the Lord and she um, put makeup, that was her job on Broadway, putting makeup on people. And so John was challenging the people in the church, use your gift for God. So God gave her this creative idea to go to, I mean, everybody, do you know within three to five years when you become a Christian, generally you have no non-Christian friends anymore? That's what the stats say. So all the Christians gather, they're lighting the same place. And there's no light going into the darkness anymore. Well, this girl was really challenged to take the light back in the darkness. So she took her makeup gift and went to the um, strip club and offered 
to put makeup on the girls in the strip club. And within a month, she started bringing tapes from her pastor and putting it in a basket that says, you might be interested in listening to this. One of the girls took one of the tapes, listened to it, came back the next week and took all the tapes. Came back the next week and said, this church sounds really interesting. (laughs) Can I go with you? She went on a Sunday morning and got gloriously saved. Several weeks later, got baptized. Guess who showed up for her baptism? All of her friends. And they started listening to tapes. And the girl who was once in this business learned to put makeup on from the Broadway girl, and now she goes back into those places to be a light where there's been nothing but darkness. See, if the church is going to regain its testimony, Jesus said it, you can't take a light and put it under a bushel. Nobody knows I'm a believer. Well, I don't think it's because of the bumper sticker. Fourth, he left people better than he found them. Say that with me. He left people better than he found them. The sad part about the church is that oftentimes I intersect situations where after an issue with someone in the church, there are often casualties rather than people found their way or got healed. Or I want people to be better after my life has touched them, not worse. And if you follow the life of Jesus... And people encountered him. Think of blind Bartimaeus. The disciples tried to hush him. And he screamed the much louder. Jesus. Son of David. He knew who he was. He would have known about the prophecies. I mean all you had to do is go back and have somebody have told you about the book of Isaiah. Jesus showed up as his his first sermon in the synagogue. His very first sermon. Reads from the book of Isaiah and says this is me. And they took him out to the edge of the cliff and tried to push him off. But I'm sure blind Bartimaeus knew that one of the things Isaiah said about him is that he would heal all diseases. Bartimaeus couldn't see him, but he could hear him. And Jesus said to him, I love these words, what would you have me do for you? Jason McElway is an autistic young man who was the basketball manager at Greek Athena High School in New Jersey. You have to Google Jason McElway's name, M-C-capital-E-L-W-A-Y, because his story was told on 60 Minutes. Jason was a senior when this YouTube was taken from the stands. It wasn't a professional video, but... His coach had been working with Jason for a number of years, and Jason was a very hyper-enthusiastic kid who loved, um, who loved the sport and loved being around the basketball team. I mean, he's the guy who's picking up jerseys and sweeping the floors. And, and the coach decided to reward Jason. His last game of his senior season, he let him dress up for the game. 
So when you see this video, Jason is sitting at the end of the bench, and with four minutes left to go in the game, the coach does something that he, even he wasn't planning. He put Jason in the game. And the crowd goes nuts. He shoots the ball and misses everything. And, of course, everybody is, is disappointed and cheering him on. He hits six three-pointers in a row. And by the time he finishes, he scored 20 points. And the crowd is so uh, enthusiastic that when the final buzzer, they rush the floor, pick Jason up, put him on their shoulders, and carry him off the floor. And the CBS announcer says these words. And for the first time in his life, he knows what it's like to be normal. Now, what if the church intervened in people's life that way? That we saw people that were broken and somehow stigmatized by things certainly beyond their control. But our goal was to release them. See, that's the power we have that have been given us to by the Lord. The power to make people whole. The power to free them to become everything that God has called them to be. The woman taken in adultery and Jesus steps in before her accusers and says, Okay, the, the one without sin cast the first stone. And all of a sudden, her life went from someone... I mean, imagine... Her life went from someone where everybody condemned her to the woman that Jesus rescued. She's the one. You're going to meet her in heaven one day. Have her tell you about her story. Or for me, I hope there's a DVD selection. We'll just be able to put them in and see all these stories about how they really came about. Last one, his actions matched his words. His actions matched his words. There's probably not a more compelling thing to encourage you today to let you know that if our actions don't match our words, nothing we say will ever be very credible. Now, see, one of the reasons I think you could say the church could lose its voice would be the opposite of these five. When we live with offense, when people are worse after engaging us than better, when our actions don't match our word, all, all of those things will cause the church to lose their voice. I want to tell you a, a last story this morning about the power of your voice, which you can equate it to influence. Because people have said when they use the term silence someone's voice, they're really talking about silencing someone's influence. But I want, to, I want to show you, give you an illustration of the power of a voice. When they were filming Braveheart, Randall Wallace was telling the story. Randall Wallace took the book Secretariat and wrote the screenplay for it for Hollywood. And he wrote the screenplay for Braveheart. And I heard him tell this, and I was so uh, encouraged by his story. And it just so happened that I heard him a couple months after Debbie and I had been in Ireland. And we were in Ireland for a 35th wedding anniversary, and we were on a tour bus out in the middle of nowhere, and the tour bus operator stopped, got us all out of the bus, and said, see that sloping hill over there? And there was nothing. It was beautiful countryside, but nothing. He said, that's where the Scottish army was standing when William Wallace rode up on his horse, hair flowing, blue paint, Mel Gibson was the actor, and made his famous speech uh, for them to fight against the tyranny of, of the British. Except I just need to know, I mean, all of that's kind of Hollywood because they weren't really Scottish warriors. They were Irish National Guardsmen. Uh, 
And of course, it wasn't Scotland. And the day before, they had played British soldiers. So that's just how the movie kind of gets everything. And, and, but you see this final product. Now, later, I heard Randall Wallace tell the story. He's the screenwriter. And he said when they were filming this, and they were all excited, and William Wallace rides up on the scene on his horse and give this great speech. And you'll remember it. He says, I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You have come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight, even if it's 2,000 against 10? Now, the screenplay has it uh, written, and this is what you see in the film when it comes out, that one man steps forward and said, no, we will not fight. We will run, and we will live. And then William Wallace retorts back and says, fight back and you may die. Run and you will live at least a while. And dying in your bed many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from that day to this for that one chance, just one chance to come back here as young men and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. Remember the story? But that's not how it was shot the first day because as William Wallace rides up on his horse and everybody's excited and, and he goes, will you fight as free men even if it's 10,000 against two? Now remember the guy's supposed to step up and say, no, we won't fight. We're going to run. They were so excited from the speech that they all said, yeah, let's go after them right now. <laughs> Cut. <laughs> it was the power of a voice. And that's what the enemy of your soul wants to silence. Proverbs says this. The tongue has the power of life and death. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Wonder how many would just say, you know, Glenn, I'm, uh, I'm a believer today. But I can see at times in the journey of my life where the enemy of my soul has tried to silence my voice or mute my influence. But I want to tell the Lord this morning that I want to be like the Good Samaritan. I want to be a person who is known for his mercy. Someone who would not take offense. Someone who would leave people better than they found them. <coughs> Somebody who would pursue others and be the kind of person that God would be pleased with. I want my light to shine. If you're here this morning and a believer but would say, you know through the journeys of life the enemy's tried to silence your voice. But you're here to say to God this morning, he will not do that. I will not allow the experiences of my life to keep me from being what God's called me to be. Would you just lift your hand? Thank you. I want to be that kind of person. Thank you, Jesus. All over the room. Thank you. One last question before Pastor Ron comes. You know, you could be here this morning and have never fully understood what it means to, to experience the power of forgiveness. That your life has been complicated and You've never come to the place where you've come to terms with the fact that without standing before God and saying, Lord, I accept the gift of your son, is that your voice would always be muted. There, there would never be a chance for you to turn people toward good.
and that your life would always be lived somehow under this cloud, somehow under condemnation. But today what you've heard is about a God who loves you, a God who's merciful, and a God who's provided for the forgiveness of your son. You know, Jesus didn't just teach us what to do. He showed us what mm-hmm. to do. He didn't just say, do this. He lived that. He said, I will forgive you. I will love you before you ever love me. If you're here this morning and have never fully experienced God's love, but would like today to begin to be the first day of that journey and would receive the forgiveness of God over your sins, I'm not going to ask you to stand, I'm not going to embarrass you, but today could be the day where you walk out of a shadow and into the light and discover the purpose for which God has created you. If you need that forgiveness this morning, would you just lift your hand? I want to pray. There's one, two, three, four, five. Anybody else? Lift your hand. I want to know the Lord. Well, Lord, I want to thank you this morning just for the presence of your spirit and knowing, Lord, that you are our model. We would choose to be followers of you. That's what disciples mean, that we would live a disciplined life and that our life would follow someone who is driven by principle and not by policy, who is driven by their love for people, not a love for an organization or an institution. God, thank you for finding us. Thank you for providing your forgiveness over us. Would all of you say this prayer with me? Father, Father, I confess my sins. I confess my sins. I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. I choose to live and follow him. I choose to live and follow him. Help me, Lord, in this journey. Help me, Lord, in this journey. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.